Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hi there, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome back to Stages. I first saw the great Peter Whitford in the iconic Australian film Carefully Might Hear You. He played George, Aunt Lila's sympathetic husband and the benevolent guardian of the young P.S. My next sighting came with an exalted vaudevillian turn in Cole Porter's Anything Goes, playing the role of Moonface Martin, public enemy number 13. Such is the range of Whitford, an actor who has rightly earned the mantle of one of our greatest character actors. Who would not be aware of another scene-stealing turn in Baz Luhrmann's Strictly Ballroom, playing the flamboyant dance instructor Les Kendall? Offstage, he is as equally captivating, armed with a vast collection of anecdote from a career that has played everything from classic theatre roles to the grit of contemporary cinema. He is a true gentleman of the theatre, and an actor who has left an indelible mark on all who were fortunate to work with him. Stages was delighted to get to know Peter Whitford a bit more in this wonderful conversation, effectively detailing the art of storytelling and the life of a charismatic jobbing actor. Peter Whitford, lovely to uh, be a guest in your home. Thank you, Peter. Welcome. <laughs> um, in a career of uh, spanning like 46 years in the game, I think. It, it is 46 it years, yes. Yeah. yeah. I came from Adelaide in 1962 to go to NIDA, and I've lived in Sydney ever since. That's 60, almost 61 years. Yeah. When I was acting, I was frequently cast as um, either a policeman or a, a liberal politician. Policeman or liberal <laughs> politician? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they, they popped up a lot. Well, you were tall enough to be a policeman. I think that's why. Could be, yes. Mm. Right. Uh, what about in your career? Were there types that you were, were cast in frequently? I don't know, but the, the type of character I really enjoyed most was the pompous person who is really an idiot. So that they're very pompous and this, that, whatever, and you just wait for them to slip on the banana skin. They are the ones I liked best because there's a lot of area for comedy and you can, you know, I mean, make something of the slipping on the banana skin. Well, you played that to the hilt, I imagine, in the best little whorehouse in Texas, playing the governor. Playing the governor, yes, indeed. That was... Now, you've hit on one of the things that I've always thought was a bit quaint about my work. I, I, we really weren't taught singing a great deal and not dancing at all at NIDA in 
in my two years there, 62 and 63. But nevertheless, it turned out in due course, my agent sent me along to be seen for something, anything at all, in the musical The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas that Mike Walsh had bought and was producing here in Australia. And I ended up being cast as the governor of Texas but there was a dance that he had and I said well I don't dance. A little sidestep. The sidestep. <laughs> you have done your research Peter <laughs> haven't you? <laughs> yes sidestep and the thing was I said to the American director well I you know can't I'm not a singer really and um, I can't dance and he sort of said but you but you can sort of walk and step and I thought yes I just said yes to shut him up and then I had the role and I had four weeks to learn to dance and sing the sidestep and I got away with it and apparently my agent the great Gloria Payton was there on opening night with a couple of friends and suddenly I was up on stage singing and dancing <laughs> She inadvertently said rather loudly, I didn't know he could do that. <laughs> and what happened was that I was then sent along subsequently for two other musicals. Anything Goes, the Cole Porter musical, where I work with lovely Geraldine Turner and the lovely Simon Burke. And I had a novelty number. Playing Moonface Martin. Playing Moonface Martin. You're able to throw this at me without looking at your notes. <laughs> You're very clever. <laughs> oh, no, no. When, when you sit in the audience and see uh, a character actor of, of such, such yes. great skill as yourself, oh, you wow. can't help but be enamoured and, and, and take it. Well, it just sort of... I had this stupid little song called Be Like the Bluebird and Sing. Then be like the bluebird and sing tweet tweet tra la 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 when you know you're headed for the jailer don't allow the old face to look paler but be like the bluebird that was in the second half in the first half fortunately i had a duet with the great geraldine turner and of course she kind of ran the duet and did in a brilliant harmony i just religiously held on to the actual tune itself um of friendship and the well it's kind of a fairly well known a perfect blendship yeah friendship friendship <laughs> that's about the blendship that and that was you know geraldine held that together your goose turn me loose if they ever put a bullet through your brain i'll complain it's friendship friendship just a perfect friendship when other friendships go up in smoke as well still the oak a lot a lot a lot of goof 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 and then well that was it no there was one more and i'm sent um to um audition for um oh, what was that called me and my girl me and my girl that slipped from the ancient memory for a moment thank you peter drop in again when you're passing um 
And yes, so I played Sir John in that, and my lady friend was the great Sheila Bradley. I mean, I have had, been on stage with some excellent musical performers, so I just hang on to their coattails and try to look like I know what I'm doing. Those commercial musicals are a huge beast. I mean, huge with the, with the company of actors, the yes. orchestra backstage, the lot. that sort of thing. Did you enjoy the? the machinery of that that big uh... yes i did because i was always interested in 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 seeing things work like that and it was nice to be so close like i worked in a movie farlap about the great racehorse and i love doing the research oh, for a number of different projects but that one i got to know farlap very well i mean i got I read two biographies of the horse. The horse didn't write them, but I did read them. <laughs> and like, and I worked with people like the, uh, Martin Vaughan, Tom Berlinson, who, you know, played uh, the people who really ran Farlap. And the horse itself was called Towering Inferno. I really got on well with the horse. I mean, <laughs> and Towering Inferno was a beautiful big horse that was actually kind of pretty well the same colour as Farlap, but also I think half a hand taller than Farlap. And it was really great to um, work with that horse, to be in the same scene as the horse. What was your role? Were you a trainer? Or... No, I was um, a guy called Bert Wolf, who was an excellent um, horse racing journalist of the time. And he actually wrote I read some of his articles, and he was one of those terrific journalists that can write about a specialty subject, like horse racing in this case, and you can follow it, and you can understand it, and you can learn from it. And once again, I was fortunate. Um, I actually met and got a lot of help from Bert Wolf's son. I was able to meet the son of the man I was playing, um, the same as in a mini-series once, I played Dr. Effort, who was the Minister for External Affairs. Was that the dismissal? No, mm. I didn't work in the dismissal, but it was called The Last Bastion, oh, yep. and it was about World War II. Michael Blakemore came out from England to play uh, the Prime Minister, John Curtin, and I played what we now call the Foreign Secretary, um, but Minister for External Affairs, Bert Evert. And I was lucky enough to meet Bert Everts' daughter and son-in-law, and I didn't have to read anything about Bert because daughter and son-in-law gave me all the information I needed on playing Bert Evert. That's the sort of research that I have really enjoyed doing. Well, it's a wonderful thing about being an actor, isn't it? That with each new project, you, you enter a new world. Yes. And you fill yourself up That's with right. as much history and, and knowledge and research as you possibly can. That's why with each experience, yes. you're, you're garnering so much more knowledge, aren't you? That, that yes. you can tell me all about Bert Wolf. You probably never heard of him before Farlap. No, I hadn't heard of him before Farlap. didn't know who he was at all. But then when you are told you're going to play it, you think, right... I want to know what the guy was about and why he was important. He even went across to America, to San Francisco, with Farlap, when Farlap went over and ran his famous last race in uh, Mexico. Uh, they keep saying America, but it was in Mexico. He ran 
the great last race and proved he was the greatest racehorse at that time in 1932, greatest in the world, um, by winning that race in Nagua Caliente in Mexico. But so I, Bert Wolf went over there, so I had to be in the final shots when Farlow you know, ran that particular race. But you're dead right when suddenly, you know, would you play this? I sort of, I did a lot of theatre work two years, 1971 and 1972, at the what is now the Marion Street Theatre, or what became the Marion Street Theatre. And Peter Collingwood ran it in 71, 72, and he kept using what he called his family. That's people like Peter Rowley, uh, John Crummell, Jennifer Hagen, uh, different people. We were all there, and whatever he told us to play in the next production, we just did it. Now and then you'd have a leading role, another time you'd be just a supporter. And the third play that I did for him, I had to play Two Red Indians. Now, this is very important. It's a comedy called The Wind in the Sassafras Trees. And it was... Oh, that whole classic. That old classic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's a comedy, and it's just a spoof of all Western movies. And so you had to have a hero and all of those cliché-type people. And um, there's a Red Indian, a good Red Indian, in Act One. And um, he's called Partridge Eye. I hope you're taking notes, Peter. And it's a role I want to play one day. Yeah, you're right. Well, I think is, and you and you made yourself up as a Red Indian, right? And the Red Indian comes back in Act Two, but he's Lynx Eye. He's a bad Red Indian, but the makeup and the costume had to be exactly the same. The point being, I think, quite racist, that all Red Indians look the same in a movie, don't they? Yeah. Well, that's it. So I had a play, and I had lines like Now, why I remember that, everything was written in this ridiculous language, but I used to always go over my lines before an entrance, and I'd do that in the communal dressing room and drive Peter Rowley mad, because Peter was playing the ne'er-do-well son of the family. And so I'd go over it and over it, and he used to get a little uptight by the fact that I was talking gibberish, why should I try to remember it? Anyway, um, no, and as you've said, it's beautiful as an actor, when you're chucked into a role, I never thought I'd ever play a Red Indian, but I did, I played two in the one show. And um, always wanted to play a detective. And I played a French detective in a raincoat uh, in a play called, um, uh, what was it, Trap for a Lonely Man. It is an excellent plot, a really great plot, Trap for a Lonely Man, and we did that at Marion Street with Peter Collingwood directing. And in due course, I played a detective again at Marion Street, um, who was an American Jewish detective and... Uh, like worked in the Catskill Mountains somewhere in the East Coast of America. and But it was trapped for a lonely man, but 
rewritten in American and called Catch Me If You Can. Uh-huh. Not the film that no. DiCaprio made, but, um, you know, and so I played two detectives. And finally, the detective in Dial M for Murder, that great thriller. Mm. Um, it, it had been played at Marion Street by Peter Carroll, the detective, very old-fashioned Scotland Yard detective. And then they were, uh, the offer was to do two or three weeks across in Adelaide because uh, the Playhouse, whatever it's called over there, was available for two to three weeks. And so they said to me, would I replace Peter Carroll in that detective role? And I said, yes. The trick was I had to learn the lines completely, just absolutely learn them the way one used to have to just learn Latin and French when I was at high school and I did and it was most interesting in a British murder mystery thriller to actually have to learn like that and again you do learn a lot for your craft in playing a detective the point mainly being for any young actors who are listening to any of this the point is that the detective has to remember what the next line is that normally has nothing to do with the line that has come beforehand. Other words, in most scripts, something is said and someone answers it and like that. The detective always changes subject completely to throw the suspects off the scent. And so therefore, when you learn the script of, say, a Scotland Yard detective, no, the next speech you've got has got nothing to do with what someone has just said. They are leading the game. That's right. So you've got to really mm. be absolutely... It's a different way of learning the script when you've got to play, which is what I found out, when you've got to play a detective. But I have played three detectives, and so therefore that was rather fun. You ever thought of offering your services down to the, the Newtown Cop Shop? Or? The Newtown Cop Shop is a different area. <laughs> As you well know, it's the great inner west of Sydney. And it's, you know, while Newtown is now a highly expensive suburb, and it used to be not that at all, um, it's still got a certain underlife <laughs> that keep, I think, the police personnel of the Newtown Police Station probably a little tougher than your detectives than my detectives that'll do (laughs) or I was about to say police persons in other police stations in Sydney Um, that that production going back to Adelaide was that your first professional return to to Adelaide because you you were born and grew up in Adelaide I was born and bred in Adelaide yeah Uh, no I there was the early 80s David Hare came out the English uh, and he had a new play called A Map of the World, and it was produced by the then Old Tote Theatre Company, and it was rehearsed here, but it was really being prepared for the Adelaide Festival, and so I did go over there. But, oh, no, now you've reminded me, the first professional show, I wasn't all that long out of NIDA, and it was again, it was a children's production called The Runaway Steamboat by Eleanor Whitcomb, who's an Adelaide playwright lady. And 
I had to be the runaway steamboat. It had to do it, one of those paddle boats on the River Murray, and the flood had happened, and paddle boats in, way back in those times were able to go out across the land, you know, because a lot of lot of water, and they just had to paddle their way through tall gum trees, in effect. And I played young. Oh, the name of the character. Now I haven't thought of this for a long time. It was called Quickly Quickly. Have you got that written down? Yeah. No, you haven't, right. No, no, no. Well, anyway, Quickly Quickly. And my girlfriend, and I forget what her name was, but it was some young actress, and I hope she's done okay since, Jackie Weaver. Have you heard of her? Um, no. Yeah, she, her name might have been on the credits of a film I saw recently. Well, why not? Yes. <laughs> well, Jackie Weaver, that was the first time I met her. Subsequently, in our careers, we have worked together as boyfriend and girlfriend, husband and wife. and Director and actor? Director. I directed her in uh, 1999. Silhouette? Silhouette. Yes. Very good. And you didn't even look at your notes again for that, did you? <laughs> Well, well, I audi- I remember I auditioned for that. I didn't get the role, but uh, did, yes. Who? You auditioned me. Did I audition yes, you? you did, you did. You this did, is embarrassing. I don't expect to know. And don't what was, can you remember what the role was? I don't remember much about that. It was a, a, a young policeman, I think. Ah, right. Mm. And yeah. there you go, another policeman, not a liberal politician. Well, yes, well, policeman. no, I simply, uh, John, John Crummel was then running Marion Street Theatre and, you know, he found this rather pleasant murder mystery thriller from an English writer and uh, said would I like to direct it and I said yes well we had to get a leading lady most important because the play is really about that leading lady and uh, we thought about a number of people and I thought I'll phone up Jackie just for sure so I just phoned up Jackie and said look I'm directing this you know would you like to play the lead in a murder mystery uh, putting on at Marion Street Theatre and she didn't think about it for very long and she said I've never played one of those yes I'll do it I remember going back and telling John I said look um, I've got Jackie Weaver to play the lead and John almost fell off the chair and said in that dramatic John Crummel way well this puts an entirely new light on the whole thing and I thought I'll get off but anyway so I directed Jackie Weaver she, she is great I mean she's wonderful wonderful lady a mad mate for decades now and um, just a superb actress yeah absolutely. and really great mm. to actually um, what she did you know she's one of those people you sort of lead them to where you'd like them to go but you don't tell them where to arrive. It's sort of like that saying, the best teachers are those who show you where to look. They don't tell you where to, what to see. No, yeah. And this is, you know, and Jackie just bit by bit took over without wrecking the show whatsoever and without changing anything and just really got it operating superbly. And you know, great, great fun to see on stage. Yeah. Do you remember the first time on stage for you? Yes, I was five years old. King of Hearts. Uh, 
King of Hearts. I want to know where you've done your research <laughs> from, Peter. Um, it was the King of Hearts. Yeah, yeah. My father made me a crown. I was five years old and it was, you know, primary school, kindergarten actually, end of year concert. And, you know, the kids had to sing King of Hearts. What, what is that nursery rhyme? Something about tarts and everything like that. But anyway, so I had to have a crown. My father made me, I haven't, I can still visualize the crown. Yeah, yeah. My father made it out of cardboard and painted it gold with red hearts, red heart shapes stuck onto it. And then, I don't know whether it was the same year or the following year when it was the grand old age of six. I played Tom Tom the Piper's son. I had this model pig, this stuffed pig. Tom Tom the Piper's son stole a pig and away he ran. Is that it? Yes. Well, I was the one and everyone had to sing it. Um, and something about down came a blackbird and pecked off his nose. I think might be something to do that with That was Jack Horner. Wouldn't Jack Horner have his thumb in a pie? Yeah, right. And the blackbirds came down? Oh, right. Yes. Okay. Um, I've quite forgotten the script. Mm. But I used to be sent well, to... that's understandable. Thank it's, you very much. quite a while ago. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember then uh, the Sunday school that I used to go to when I was a little boy. Um, I learnt um, what they called an elocution piece. My mother had... Um, 13 letters after her name for elocution so my brother and I were both taught to speak correctly even at home even before my brother also went to NIDA later he's younger than me and he became an actor uh, but we were already quite well trained at home by mum to speak proper and did, so, you, did you always want to be an actor yes yeah. I didn't know that's what I wanted to be. But you needed to But that's what perform, I want. I wanted to get up and perform and, you know, fine. I knew I didn't have a chance of becoming an actor. And, you know, like it was Adelaide and my father's attitude. I, you know, both my parents had come through the depression. So what I really should be looking for is a nice, secure job. You know, I should be, you know, okay, go through primary, then high school and then study at university or whatever I could do uh, to become a lawyer or, or, you know, a chartered accountant or something that was secure. And uh, sort of mentioning that I wanted to become an actor, well, you learned not to point that out because that was so insecure and, you know, fancy, fancy all of that. So um, there's no television at this time, of course. No. So what was your access to actors? seeing them work was was that going off to the the pictures every week or every week off to the pictures saturday afternoon matinee at the local croydon odeon uh, watching all sorts of movies every saturday afternoon and also when i when i was old enough to just catch the tram into the city uh, into the theater royal to watch live theater which i just Adored. I love being there and watching how actors could, you know, get laughs. How, you know, telling funny stories and all of that kind of thing, and pantomimes and all of that. I just loved the area of performing. Just loved it that much. But I knew um, 
it, how well I, I I had no chance of becoming an actor and I was put into the South Australian public service when I left high school and I spent a total I spent two years being a most inefficient useless junior clerk in the Crown Solicitor's Office and sort of learnt a lot about but I was meant to be studying law part-time at the Adelaide University and of course I just wasn't and you know I just could not apply I am totally useless as a human being except in what I was able in due course to spend 46 years of my life doing performing when you say you had no chance of being an actor was that because uh, of geography you were in Adelaide there was yes. no opportunities or training institutions no there weren't training institutions uh, Adelaide at that time I don't know what the situation is now but had a lot of um, amateur theatre groups and there was a great rivalry between all of them so if you worked for one of them the other ones wouldn't look at you to cast you in anything you know you were punished um, <laughs> the way that Adelaide still does deal with people who go back to live there if they dared to leave and go somewhere else <laughs> so, so your first experiences are university theatre? Well, kind of, um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, there was a group called Shakespeare, the Independent Theatre I think it was called, they used to put on Shakespeare plays, the ones that were set for high school students to study. So I played in no less than two separate productions of Julius Caesar. I did as an amateur play Horatio in Hamlet and uh, and played in a play about World War One called Journey's End by R.C. Sheriff, which I really loved doing that one too. But the point was that I thought that's what my life was going to be, that I would just be in Adelaide working not well at all but you know being at most inefficient clerk in the state public service you're in your early 20s then doing those plays you also late teens yeah. yeah you did a play called tell me about a resounding tinkle i did a play by nf simpson called how do i remember all this you're very clever at bringing this out a resounding tinkle which was written a bit in the style of well, it was the time of the Goon Show on radio, and it was it was great. I just I played a critic that it sort of fits uh, in at, at the end of the play or somewhere in the middle of the play. Four critics come on stage and begin to discuss in a stupid highfalutin way the kind of production that everyone in the audience has been watching, kind of thing. In due course, here in Sydney, uh, the lunchtime theatre at the AMP Theatre down at the Quay, I directed a cut-down version, a three-hander. Russell Newman, Joan Bruce and Elaine Lee were my three actors, and I directed them in a lunchtime performance of um, A Resounding Tinkle. And that, and that worked quite well because I kind of knew how it was going to go. Um, but yeah, the way that I sort of 
My father set himself up after studying, set himself up as a psychologist in private practice in Adelaide. And like after I'd been four years in the public service, oh, they sort of transferred me, threw me out of the Crown Solicitor's Office and put me in another office, the public trustee, looking after um, real estate, you know, at the Lands Titles Office doing searches. Have I lost you so far? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I was not very good at that either. And then a friend of mine, Dennis Olson, I'd worked in theatre. Oh, that's right, we did The Merchant of Venice. I played Graciano, Dennis played Shylock, that's right. So you're cutting your teeth on a lot of Shakespeare's. Yes, yeah. yes, indeed. And, um, you know, that's where you begin to have a great respect. You don't want to sound pompous, but Bill Shakespeare sure knew what he was doing when he wrote the stuff. And through rehearsals, you began to like him a lot more because he always put the right words in at the right moment. Yeah. And, you know, he was, he's just, I always call him Bill Shakespeare. There's people who say, oh, William Shakespeare, or have you done Shakespeare? Yeah, I've done Bill Shakespeare. And he's just somebody else who, you know, left Stratford, bit of a hick town, about a hundred miles north of London, went to London to become an actor. And he was a lousy actor, apparently, and Richard Burbage, the boss of the company, found out that he could put words together. So Shakespeare was forced to pick up the quill and write. Uh, because right, he did. and sort of if ever he was on stage to fill out the numbers on stage it wasn't a big role apparently because he wasn't very good spear carrier a spear carrier exactly a spear carrier <laughs> sorry I cut your uh, Dennis Olsen story well the Dennis and anyway we had heard in Adelaide that there was this new institution had opened in Sydney called the National Institute of Dramatic Art, NIDA. And it was, you know, set up as a full-time training, two-year course in acting. Uh, and I think uh, production is what they called it. We call them directors since then. Uh, and Dennis had heard about it. And he, I think it was... The then founding leader, the, uh, Professor Quentin, had been going around Australia auditioning possible new young students uh, to go in. Only 30 acting students were taken in each year. And Dennis, at the last moment, had heard that Robert Quentin was in Adelaide and just sort of barged in and demanded uh, to be auditioned. And, of course, being Dennis Olsen, he was extremely good and so professor he was offered um, uh, a scholarship there weren't many scholarships available so really a family was meant to totally support a student if they were accepted into NIDA to study and so I remember at the end of that would be at the end of 1960 Dennis left Adelaide and came to Sydney to study for his two-year course at NIDA but he told me all about what it was about and I just thought wouldn't it be great wouldn't it be great if if that's what I could do if I could become a professional actor instead of 
what I was looking ahead at was being not a very good public servant and doing amateur theatre for the rest of my life. And it was a very hot New Year's evening, I remember, in Adelaide. My mother and my brother had gone off somewhere or other, visiting somewhere, and my father, who was the worst driver I have ever known, drove me and him down to the beach to get a bit of cool air off the sea. So we were down at Henley Beach or Semaphore, one of those places, and um, I, I had, whatever, I was meant to be studying part-time at Adelaide University, I was failing every subject. My brother was also part-time, and my brother David actually, he was a star because he passed one subject. He was in the Commonwealth Public Service, and he his part-time study, he did pass one subject. I didn't pass any. And I'm there talking with my father, trying to get a breeze off the beach. And my father suddenly said, you know, that his business had come pretty good. He was, as a private practicing psychologist, he was doing okay. And he was going to take my brother out of the public service and send him full-time studying at Adelaide University and uh, whatever course my brother chose. And also, he was now offering the same to me. Now this, back in then, 1960, that was a big, generous offer, really great. And also my father's concession was I could study whatever I wanted to. He tried to push me into studying law, even chartered accountancy, or studying something that would give me a solid, reliable profession, um, rather than, yeah. And I said, well, I said very bravely, I said, what I want to do is full-time course in Sydney at this new place called NIDA. Dad was not impressed. He said, oh, what is it? And I said, it was, you know, full-time training for two years, uh, acting, and um, you sort of get a diploma, but then you've got to go out and get a job and get an agent and everything. But it was the sort of training I knew you had to have. Like, you could say, any of us could be a world-famous concert pianist, but you've got to learn to play the piano. Absolutely. And so... And I thought, and it was the same people thinking, oh, anyone can get up and act. Well, you can't. Let me know you can't. And you've got to have training, voice work. And, and uh, to put it in perspective, too, this was a time in Australia yes. where uh, there was certainly no film industry no. as much yet. That's um, right. Um, state theatre companies didn't exist. That's right. Um, your opportunities to work were really, I suppose, going overseas, as a lot of people did, yeah. or... J.C. Williamson's those commercial producers. That's right. It was all I, all I knew is I wanted to train and hope that somewhere down the line... There would be a job, yeah. There'd be a job somewhere, <laughs> somehow. And so I said this to, and so I said to Dad that Dennis Olsen had just got in and auditions were over and the next auditions weren't for another 12 months. And right, and he said, how many people get in I said, um, you know, 30. How many people audition? And in those days, it was 300. So the odds were 10 to 1 against his dopey son getting, <laughs> getting a position in NIDA. 
So um, he said, okay, you know, he'd think about it. Always the great, he'd think about it. Well, I timed him. 15 minutes he thought about it. And then he said, all right, if you pass those auditions, I'll pay your way. And it was like, it was like the sun coming up. This great dawn, I thought, it was now clear what I had to do, what I wanted to do. So I stopped all pretense of any kind of study, part-time study at the uni, and I did every amateur theatre bit I could lay my hands on. You know, a bit of Shakespeare, a bit of this, a bit of that, for the following year. And then I applied for an audition at the end of 1961, and you know the guy it was Tom Brown who was the deputy director Tom I was I auditioned for him had to get time off from the public trustee to go and visit something doctor's appointment or something and I went and auditioned and I told my mother I said look you know I've done this and everything yeah right okay uh, if a letter turns up from Sydney can you please phone me at the office and could you um, phone me at the office and just open it and read it to me. And I remember, you know, I'm not, I had to wait for two or three months, I think. But it was earlier than that. My mother phoned and said, Now, Peter, you know, I told you 13 letters after her name for elocution. So we had to drag out the drama on the end of the phone. Peter, there's a letter here from Sydney. Oh, yeah, right. And went on like that. I'm opening the letter. It was like one of those quiz shows on radio. I'm opening the letter. Fine. And then she cut to a commercial break. And she cut to the commercial break. And then she said, it says, Dear Mr. Whitford, although we have not yet finished our auditions, uh, you show the promise we would like, and we're offering you. So I'm in. And I remember in the small room where... You know, I worked with the boss and two or three other clerks. I remember hanging up, and with the arrogance of someone who's 21 and about to conquer the world, I turned and said, Mr. Rowett, to my boss, I'm going to be an actor. And he was so nice because he just said, Oh, congratulations, Peter. The guy who was the deputy public trustee and kind of in charge of the whole staff was one of the dead shits I've ever met in my whole life. He promptly moved me out of the job I had and gave me the worst job. There were about 80 staff people ran the public trustee. I was given the worst job because I was going to leave in two or three months and, you know, I was punished. But in due course, you know, I sort of... I left early because I couldn't stand the place anymore. And little did he know every experience adds to the actor's palette. That's right. <laughs> anyway, and so in due course I came across to Sydney. And Was that daunting? Had you been to Sydney before? Once. Only passing through. Right. When I was a teen, about 18 years old, just passing through really. And I just knew, you know, it's that so I don't know what the, like home. Well, I don't know what the correct quote is uh, by Bob Dylan. But Dylan said something about, I was born a long way from where I was meant to be, so I went home. And that's Wonderful. 
my attitude to Adelaide is just that and I, I've lived in Sydney now for 61 years. I came home to Sydney and to beginning oh, and, and, and to begin studying to become an actor and you know there are people like Peter Roddy, John Crumble, Jennifer Hagen, you know we still are more or less in touch. And it all must have been one of the very first years of the course. It was. I think NIDA began about 1958 and this was I, four years later, 1962, it was when I uh, began first year NIDA. Playing Ezekiel Cheever in The Crucible. Very badly. <laughs> because I took with me an 8mm wind-up movie camera that I was devoted to and I actually filmed us in street clothes, just in black and white film, uh, doing bits and pieces from the Crucible, rehearsing it in the um, Cell Block Theatre there in East Sydney. The Darlinghurst, I think. That's the one, yes, that's the one. That's where we performed it. And, did, the um, new, did the new theatre use that theatre, Cell Block Theatre, was it? I don't think so, no. no. The new theatre is now located here yeah, in King Street. Yeah. But then, where was it? Or somewhere else. But the point was that I had to do a little bit of Ezekiel Cheever in front of my own camera so that someone else held the camera and I did a scene, I mean only a few seconds really, of Ezekiel Cheever. I was appalling. Over the top, what we used to call 412, which means overacting, 412 are terrible. However, it's history. And years ago, I submitted it to um, those people in Canberra who have all this, you know, I don't know. Film and sound archive. That's it, film and sound, something like that. And anyway, and they were able to recolorize to an extent um, there was some color stuff I submitted plus this and they sent me back a disc of beautifully restored which I have somewhere in you know where discs lose themselves in this house and it was you know so my great performance of Ezekiel Cheever in 1962 NIDA is you know in the archives in Canberra. But that's what a training school is about, isn't it? As first year you arrive, it's yep. about uh, breaking those bad habits and, what, and, and learning techniques. Learning, mm. and also had some butte tutors and one or two lousy ones. And you had a sort of, as has always happened in due course with a director, say, who might be less than competent. You've got to know how to work around that well, some directors, like Robin Lovejoy, you simply learn so much in the rehearsal period. Like when I played Buckley that Robin directed in 1973, I think it was. And, um, you know, but NIDA, now and then, they really taught you what you, know, what you would need to know, what you would need to have inside you to operate. And you've got some great repertoire to play also. In, in 1962, you're in Waiting for Godot playing Pozzo. That's right. Well done. I tell you what, what's that playwright's name? It, 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 Simon. Samuel Beckett. Beckett. He had a way of writing, and it was beautiful what he wrote. 
but difficult to learn. And God help the two guys playing the tramps. I mean, that's just incredibly difficult to learn. But I played Pozzo, and I didn't have much difficulty. Peter Rowley and Peter Serrano played uh, Vladimir and Estragon. That's right. A lot of Peters, that must have driven the director mad. Well, <laughs> yes. Peter was a very common name, and the pronunciation's Rowley, by the way. Rowley, is it? Rowley, Peter Rowley. The same as, um, what's the name of the lady who wrote uh, Harry Potter? Rowling. No, it's not. It's Rowling. If it's O-W, and it's, it's Peter Rowley and uh, J.K. Rowling. Oh, yes. I'm one of the... Uh, row, row, row your boat. That's right. Yes. And I'm one of the... Back in the early 60s, radio drama, ABC radio drama, and commercial uh, radio serials like... Um, uh, oh, what did I work in? I mean, Blue I was Hills. in... Uh, Blue I Hills. was in Blue Hills for nine years. But also, everything had to be pronounced correctly. So I'm still one of those awful pedants when I hear, and you can hear commercial television, quiz masters, who would not know, but they've got great egos and they're not going to be told. And, uh, you know, I've yet to hear any one of them get the name Roosevelt correct. You know, they want to say Roosevelt, President Roosevelt. No, it's Roosevelt. It's heavy sort of Dutch pronunciation. All Americans say Roosevelt. Outside America, you get Roosevelt. Roosevelt, normally on, you know, commercial television in Australia. Um, as you're entering third year, um, yes. the old tote exists, of course. Yes. And I understand a lot of the actors, student actors, were used in old tote productions to. I want to be very humble now, Peter. It was the second year, 1963, that NIDA began. Uh, sorry, that the Old Toad Theatre Company, and the first production was The Cherry Orchard, the great play by you know, Anton Chekhov. And, and like, uh, we second-year actors were just told to be in the cast when, you know, when we were required to be extras or whatever. And in Act Two of The Cherry Orchard, that was the first time a second-year actor spoke on stage, playing the tramp. And that was the self-effacing Peter Whitford. I was the first NIDA student to speak in a professional alto theatre production. And you can see the humility that I drip all over the place. Thank you very much. And, and, yeah, congratulations. Yeah. Um, who were the pro actors who were, were doing the show? Oh, yeah, there was, there was um, oh, the great, wonderful English actor and her husband also in it. John McCallum and Googie Withers, was it? No, 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 no. It, no, it wasn't. My brother once worked with both of those, actually, but uh, no, now what was it? <sighs> Ronnie Hadrick must have been. Ronnie Hadrick was. I was right. understudying Ron, right. apart from playing The Tramp. The Tramp, by the way, was on stage for 60 seconds, and it took me one hour to make up. <laughs> I was very keen, young student. But Ron, Ron Hadrick played Gaev, the brother of Madame Ranevsky. Uh, who played Madame Ranevsky? I know. Sophie Stewart. Sophie Stewart. It, it, and her husband, Ella Serving. They were the two, in effect, senior members of the cast and the leads, therefore. Um, they got this young actor from the countryside 
came in from Maitland, kid called John Bell. He um, also, that was his first professional thing. Um, but, uh, you know, because they thought he could act a bit. So, you know, they got the, the kid. Um, I nicknamed in due course Maitland Jack because so many people when mentioning John Bell, it's almost they want to genuflect at the same time. And I, you know, I've worked with Maitland Jack on stage and, you know, we've done, st oh, never mind. But, uh, but he came down to play um, the boy, the Trofimov, Peter Trofimov, the uh, student. Um, and other bit, Owen Weingott was in it. Um, he played Leparkin, the businessman who's very embarrassed that he's rubbing shoulders with what was then the Russian kind of nobility. Um, but that was it. And then the second production that that year did, and I played a fireman in that, uh, um, was called The Fire Raisers by Max Frisch, the German playwright. And the third one was Hamlet. And the kid from Maitland played Hamlet in Hamlet when he was only 22, 23, you know, a little young to be anywhere near Hamlet, but he did it. And I was given the role of Rosencrantz. And uh, John Gregg, actor, comrade, John had already graduated from NIDA. He was Guildenstern. And we had, uh, again, Sophie Stewart and Ella Serving, they were playing the King and Queen. And uh, yeah, so uh, literally I was on stage with professional people in only the second year. I mean, what a wonderful, we worked long hours, you know, anyone, because we had to do the show at night, go home by bus or whatever, and be back at class at nine o'clock the next morning. Maybe, and, yeah. An exciting time for you to graduate also. Oh, because, yes. Because uh, you probably all weren't aware of it yet, but there was this burgeoning new wave of Australian theatre that yes. was about to happen towards That's the end right. of that decade. Yeah. And, you know, one ended up... And the, in the 60s, I was in one or two or three or four of those, um, and the thing was, yes, Australian audiences started to come out of the woodwork. They wanted to see stories that you know our playwrights had written and so we had to get on stage and, and do it and um so uh, uh, and david williamson and david williamson yeah that's right and and really was great because very often i remember i did a play at the um it was converted church by the randwick Racecourse. what did, was it called and um, jane street jane street dead right yeah and I did some stuff there that was directed by different people and this guy turned up, a guy called Tom Keneally. And Tom was an author and, uh, you know, written books. We knew who Tom was, a great mate, I mean, terrific guy. And he had, he'd actually seen plays and thought, I can write one of those. And so he wrote... Uh, Halloran's Little Boat, which was all about the early colony of Sydney without saying it was Sydney. And I was in effect the governor, a bit too young in my 20s to be playing it, but I was the first to play it in Tom Keneally's play. And it was what, Tom used to come along to rehearsal, we rehearsed in the theatre itself, it was only a 90-seater 
but there, and Tom would be sitting out the front while Alexander Hay directed us. And I remember, and he just looked, and he didn't say anything for a few days. We had to rehearse the whole play in two weeks and have it on. There was no, you know, we couldn't, didn't have time, get it right now kind of thing. And we were normally working at night time in the current play and then come back in the daytime to rehearse the next one. Monthly rep or even fortnightly rep style. And one day I remember Tom suddenly said to Alex, hey, could he please address the actors? So we all thought, wow, we're going to learn something. And Tom stood there and he apologised to all of us. He hadn't realised that so much work and detail had to go into getting a play on stage. And he just thought you learned the lines and walked on stage and did it. And here we are, we're analysing this, analysing that. And anyway, the thing was, I was playing Mr Blythe. That's right. I was Blythe. And there was a convict played by Kerry Maguire, convict woman, who had been caught stealing from the stores. And that meant she had to be hanged because that's how the colony worked. And so, anyway, I had a speech. Anne Edmonds played my wife, and I was telling my wife about what had happened in the court case. I didn't like my wife, she didn't like me, so Anne and I had a great time just bitching each other, not liking. But what I had to tell my wife was that the convict woman wasn't going to be hanged because she was pregnant. Now, you've got to be careful how you say all that. Uh, you know, and Tom had written enceinte, French for pregnant, E-N-C-E-I-N-T-E. And that's when I just, at that point, I said, enceinte, they're not going to know what I mean. The audience has got to know. But you've also got to say it because Mr. Blythe is using it. He's not going to use the word pregnant because that's dirty. But, you know, but my speech went something like, but when the judges, or whoever it was, heard she was enceinte, and you say it like it's a dirty word and it's French and that's you're getting away with it. And I said, no, they're not going to know what that means. And it's got to be, they've got to know it's pregnant because it makes the point. And anyway, so I said, I want to say, when the judges heard she was with child, and then you go on with the speech, but you say with child, which gets the point across. Tom didn't like that. Tom wanted enceinte. I held my ground and I refused to say enceinte. And so every performance I did, I said with child. Now, in due course, the play was done in Melbourne with the great actor Brian James playing my role. But, 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 but I was the first to play it. I was the first to play Mr. Blythe. I don't know what Brian did, but eventually, of course, the book uh, script was published by Currency Press. And, you know, when I got hold of a copy, I went straight to see, <laughs> went straight to the speech. You know what, that old bugger Tom Keneally, he had all sand in there. And that's the way it's been published ever since, of course. But no, you know, and you want to say to Tom, no. <laughs> you know, 
Yes, you don't want to speak down to your audience, but you also need to have clarity in the story, don't you? Total clarity. You've got to just really make sure, you know, because it's like, you know, old preachers in, you know, the the time of Christ, they, you know, they they told a story. Mm. Christ preached parables. Mm. It's got to be clear for what, um, yeah. So on, on graduation, were you scooped up by Gloria Payton? No. Did you ever know Gloria? No, no, but I'm, I'm fascinated to hear about she it. She's quite an icon as an agent. In, total in icon. Yeah. Well, she was already the most... There were four, only four agents in Sydney at the time. There was International Casting Service, that's Gloria Payton. And there was, who was the second one? Vaud Video, which was across King Street, directly opposite Gloria's place. Vaud Video, run by Val Llewellyn. Central Casting, run by Queenie Ashton's husband, John... John... I want to say Cover, that's not right. Anyway, and number four was Telecast, which was essentially extras. extras uh, You know, so what you did when you left NIDA, you sort of... You aim for the top one first. And if Gloria Payton says, no, there's no position for you in my agency, then you go to Vaud Video. And if they say no, you, you just sort of until you get one of the four who's willing to take a punt. So I remember I went into the battered office where Gloria Payton was in a sort of a, a large room was really all she had. And a, a girl in the next partitioned off next bit of the room on the switchboard with plugs in plugging all of that. So I had an appointment and I remember went in and I sat down in front of the great lady, you know, Gloria Payton, and very famous, tough agent. She could be so... T- there were people in the business then who apparently, if the executive of a television channel had to talk, hiring an actor, they, 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 they didn't want to deal with Gloria. These tough suited businessmen were terrified to deal with and she could be oh she could be quite uh, tough but she was very compassionate she was absolutely honest and down the line really great anyway i sat opposite her and she looked at me like you know (laughs) a bit like you're a cockroach but you can stay there look right and then she simply talked to me and gave me every reason why this is not a good idea. Not a good idea because... Had she seen your work? Well, this was the point. She gave me every reason why I should not be aiming to become an actor. She should... And she simply... And, you know, therefore, and everything. But at the end, it was almost like pulling a tooth. She said, but I've watched your work. And she said... I'll, I'll give you a trial for six months. <clears throat> All I knew, I thought, I've got to be good for six months. I've got to be very good for six months. And so I, you know, I left, but I was on the books of the great Gloria Payton, the International Casting Service. And so and that, that was it. And years went by. <clears throat> and about every year or so, I'd wander in there and I'd say, am I still on trial? And she'd keep a straight face and say, well, yes, I'm still thinking about it. You know, years had gone by. 
and I'm one of the people that is making money for her. And so, but she was she was like that great sense of humour. She um, Greek background actually. Great name for an agent. Pay ten. It's by accident. And you, I was the first person ever to actually say, I said to someone, perfect name, pay 10%. Peyton, that's how it's spelled. And I'm talking to Tom Oliver, the actor, once, and he said, I never realised it because he was on her books too. And, you know, but it is, Peyton. But what happened was she was one of three sisters and there was a son called John. And the family surname was the Greek Pianos, P-I-A-N-O-S. And the dad worked for British Tobacco and was moved around Europe to be the representative of British Tobacco and took the family, his wife and the three daughters. The son had already left Europe and come to live here. I think in somewhere like Wagga, I'm not too sure. But anyway, uh, his name was John. John Pianos had come here and back in Europe war started at the particular time uh, that uh, the senior dad with the three daughters and the wife had settled into a new position in um, what is the great city that was bombed amazingly in the last year of the war wiped out what was it called the great German city. Germany, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what's it called? I know. God, I should know it because when I used to read books for the um, Royal Blind Society, as it was for their talking book library, they gave me the book to read. It was called The Devil's Tinderbox. And I had to read it. And at one point, I had to read What Happened to the Animals? in the zoo and at the end of talking about that it was early in the afternoon I just said to my producer who was recording I just said I'm going home now yeah. because it was so what was it Dresden Dresden the great city of Dresden well Gloria Payton was there in the bombing of Dresden as her father and mother and two sisters were and the next day she was out on a bicycle riding around amongst all the death and everything to find food. Now out here in Australia, her brother had joined up early in the war with a mate of his to fight the Japanese, to go up and fight the Japanese. You know, it's a tough family that is, was Gloria's family. And anyway, and he decided he didn't want to be called John Pianos so his best friend, who was also joining up in the Australian Army, was called Peyton. So he just took his best friend's surname, P-A-Y-T-E-N. It's pure chance. So then when the war was over and they didn't, you know, know what's the Pianos family going to do, he just began to say, get out, because Stalin was in charge of Russia. We could be on the brink of World War Three, you know, everything like that. And he said, get out and come here with to me in Australia. Well, they didn't know where Australia was except that John lived here. So they all came out and Gloria Payton turned up here unable to speak English. Within two years, she was doing ABC radio plays. She was amazing. 
but also as a great mate of hers was the director Robin Lovejoy who once said to me did you ever see Gloria act before she became an agent and I said no and he looked at me and rolled his eyes and just said she was awful <laughs> but anyway so she decided to get a job uh, with Vaud Video as it was across King Street from where she ended up um, and she learned how to be an agent from being an agent and then she just left there and started up her own agency and it, those days when different companies would come out from America say and make a movie they'd come out they might use local people but they'd bring the stars with them naturally enough and um, Gloria saw that there was this need Americans had come out and they'd want to use local people but who were the local people so she called herself International Casting Service ICS and so she you know out would come an American company to shoot some movie here whatever the Sundowners was yeah. shot here yeah. Fred Zinnemann I think directed that she became great close mates of Fred Zinnemann and what she did was that you know and she also watched Deborah Carr working Deborah Carr came out I've forgotten the name of the top American actor who was we all know his name did westerns and everything young you know could ride a horse perfectly and everything but Peter Ustinov also came out and was in that movie but International Casting Service they got the Australians that Fred Zinnemann needed and so people like Lola Brooks was cast because she was right for a certain role in the Sundowners. Chips Rafferty? No, that, no Chips actually? wasn't in that movie, right. no. Um, and he, uh, you know, uh, and so she actually, and in due course, uh, you know, she was an agent. Now, she was such a person that she wasn't mistrusted to be both a casting person and to represent actors because she really was very, she knew so many actors that she wouldn't naturally just cast her own people <clears throat> because that was not the sort of person she was. If she had an actor or actress who was correct, they'd get the job. But she was not at all scared to give other agents, actors, a job. If, and, but in due course, Actors' Equity, as it was then, <coughs> just quietly said to her, Gloria, it doesn't look good, you know, that you're doing both sides of the business like that. So she gave up being casting and just ended up being an actor's agent and died still comparatively young of cancer when she was probably only in her 60s. You oh, know. Very young, yeah. She was quite, quite young. Um, but, you know, she was a great agent and I know that we got on well together. I, you know, like... I've always respected her, always, you know, but still we knew we could trust each other. And um, Well, life as an actor, that's, a, that's an essential role, isn't uh, absolutely. it? Absolutely. You, you have to trust to your survive. agent. Yeah. And so, you know, you do get a bit concerned when you read about um, uh, the, the singer, the guy from Adelaide recently had to sue his manager. Oh, guy Sebastian. Guy Sebastian. You know, and when I saw Guy Sebastian had that problem, I mean... Poor guy, you know. No, you've got to absolutely trust your agent that 
they're, they're part of your whole existence. Well, it's a story that unfortunately repeats itself again. All again. the De- time. Debbie Reynolds, um, all those big stars were yes. ripped off by their... Um, yeah, ripped off by these people. The money's coming in, or let's keep it. Yeah. And you think, no. Yes. Oh. <laughs> my, my business acumen isn't that terrific, really. So you, no. re- you rely on someone like you that. You do, yeah. and you know you've got to have an agent because you don't know, you know, as an actor, how much you're worth in this next job that someone's offering you. You know, like they offering you, I've lost one or two jobs because I've said, no, that's not right. And they've had to say to me, you know, the people who inherited ICS have got to say, well, they're not going to pay more. And I've said, well, they're going to pay more, otherwise I'm not going to do it. And I've lost at least two jobs. I know theatre jobs, both of them. Just standing you around. Well, just because I said, well, one of them was I'd done a play in Melbourne and uh, they wanted to do the same production, one or two changes in the cast, but up here in Sydney. Um, but there was going to be a smaller salary for the role that I'd played in Melbourne. And I said, no, no, you, we're not doing that. That's the beginning of going backwards. That's Then they know they've got you. So I was actually uh, fired from that. You know, I never played the role here in Sydney. I went along and saw who was playing the role. And you've got to be very careful when you say this sort of thing. But I watched him work and I thought, no. And I know why. I know what he did wrong, absolutely did wrong. Um, one of the beautiful things about the show was that it was only a cast of five, actually. But no, a woman in... Melbourne, who played a certain role, she, she was okay, nothing wrong. But up here, they gave the role to Maggie Dance. Maggie ate it beautifully. And suddenly, the way she performed that I thought, that's how you've got to play that role. But it took Maggie Dance to be the one up on stage doing it and finding comedy where none of us had realised in Melbourne there was the comedy done a certain way. And um, then it was very funny and very black, black, but funny. But the guy that played my role um, was, I mean, a beaut guy and other areas of work. Quite frankly, and I'll give you this for nothing, um, it was a play called Kennedy's Children, and it's set in the 1960s, and it's about five separate people sitting in a bar alone. They don't talk to each other. They talk to the audience without talking to the audience. They're really talking to themselves out loud in their own heads. And uh, there was this badly mentally damaged veteran from the Vietnam War who was there and obviously very badly damaged, you know, this sort of soldier. That was a young actor called Brian Brown. Right, and that my role was one of those guys who runs one of those off-Broadway theatre groups. An aggressive homosexual. The whole thing is just like that, you know what I mean? And so and so, oh, look at her, and doing all of that. You know, an aggressive, feminine homosexual, the only way to play it. You've got to play it gay. Now, way back in those times, you know, people didn't like really playing gay on stage in case people thought, you know, that 
they were gay. Well, you know, never ever bothered me. Just get up and do what is required. And so that's the way I played it in Melbourne. This aggressive, sneering, vicious queen sort of performance. Okay, that's what the script was written for. Up here, the guy that played that role, one of those heterosexuals who, to me, it was like he placed the character an invisible, an invisible rabbit like in that movie, Harvey the Invisible Rabbit that, you know. James Stewart. James Stewart did, yeah. What it was like, he, he was saying to the audience, this isn't me, this isn't me. There's this invisible person next to me. I'm playing him. And he's, you know, a homosexual. And I thought, no, baby, you've got to be a homosexual acting. A hom- you've got to do it that way. That's about authenticity. That's totally. Mm. And so, um, you know, like, he wasn't good. And I rather would have liked to have been there to do it, you know, myself, just the way I'd done it in Melbourne, which is an aggressive homosexual I'm the boss here, none of you bastards are, kind of thing, with lots of sibilants or whatever you want to throw in. But you knew your worth and you were... Well, I knew that that was the correct way to do it and something I must have picked up somewhere along the way, NIDA, whatever. You've got to become the person totally in your own head and your heart. The original production of the season at Sarsaparilla... The original was done, it was an Adelaide production. Mm. Uh, Cliff Neat played the role that I, you may remember, I don't know whether you know, Patrick White was so pissed off with, you know, the way his plays were reviewed mainly, you know, you put on one of his shows like Ham Funeral and the critics loved to carve it up in print. And he just finally pulled everything out. And you probably know that Jim Sharman, the great manoeuvring Jim Sharman, lovely guy, but he must never be allowed to rule the world, that one. (laughs) But Jim, you know, faced Patrick and said he wanted to do Season of Sarsaparilla. And, you know, and so he talked, you know, Patrick into it, into releasing the rights, and Jim would direct it. And but every member of the cast had to be approved by Patrick. Now Patrick's knowledge of theatre was very, very good, and he, you know, and the thing about that was, uh, and Jim put this in his autobiography. It was one conversation where apparently Patrick said, "Now what about Peter Whitford? He's a good actor," and Jim said, "Okay." So literally, I was cast by Patrick White in that particular role as Clive Boxer. as Clive Boxer. And it was great to rehearse. Uh, you know, it was Kate Fitzpatrick was in it, um, another escapee from South Australia, and um, and other people who were there. You know, uh, Bill Hunter was there, and oh, everyone. Max Cullen. Max Cullen was there, and beauty and oh, other other all of who. John Jarrett. John Jarrett was yeah. there, and I don't know whether Johnny had any lines, but he was there as. Something or other. Ron Suddards. Who? Ron Suddards. That's right, yeah. Oh, you had to look the notes up for once. Yeah. Thank you. 
Right. <laughs> but, but you also played um, Robin Nevin's husband. Well, that was where I met Robin. Yeah. I met Robin Nevin, and she was playing. I was playing Clive. She was playing Girly, Girly Pogson, and I still. It was just so great. I mean, you know, Robin, terrific actress. And I was just absolutely in awe as rehearsals, rehearsals began. And it was the f- second day, approx- very early in rehearsal period, I suddenly found myself way over against a wall of the rehearsal room, a big rehearsal room we were in, just watching these people work and thinking, I can't do this. I c- they were being wonderful. And suddenly next to me, absolutely terrified like I was, was Kate Fitzpatrick. And so Kate and I were cowering, almost in a corner of the rehearsal room, in awe and terrified of the rest of the cast. And then we just knew we had to get on and do it and everything. And I remember, you know, at the end of it all, the end of the run, it's the best thing I've ever seen Kate Fitzpatrick do. She was absolutely one, wore a chenille dressing gown all the way through. She, I mean, talk about a sleazy, sleazy woman. Did it, oh, fantastic. Really beautiful. And, you know, Bill and, um, all, they were all terrific. And Robin was absolutely wonderful as Gurley Pogson. And it was really beautiful to be able to chuck a line at her and she'd chuck it back. Always now and then when I tried just a little bit something different, she'd throw something back which was better. <laughs> And it really was, um, she could do, do things. I had one of the best sequence of lines that I've ever had in a play that Patrick had written. Because Clive is always, you know, breakfast in the morning, reading a newspaper and announcing news from the world. And I remember that I thought, yeah, years ago, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, at the breakfast table in Croydon, in Adelaide, my father, reading the advertiser, had announced to the family, oh, war in Korea, like that, right? Announcing all this, like no one would know it except him. And so I had the line that Patrick had written, something is happening in Laos. That's how Clive would pronounce it. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't Laos, Laos. <laughs> so I said something was happening in Laos, and I had to say that once. You know, something as if oh, I, I, I used to do it exactly like my dad had announced war in Korea years before. Enjoyed doing that, and anyway, I had and there was a sequence of lines, you know. Yeah, uh, you know, like Laos, whatever. And out of nowhere, Clive says, 27 nuns raped in the Congo. And Robin said, oh yes, oh yes, it's always the woman who suffers, like that. <laughs> and I had the next line was, if it's any consolation to you, girlie, they did a Pakistani colonel as well. <laughs> Isn't that great? And Robin and I had that exchange written by Patrick. Great comedy, great observation about. Was he very present in the rehearsal room at that point? No, he no. wasn't. He didn't. 
But I tell you what, once on the opening night when he turned up, you've never seen Patrick like it. Beaming and smiling and just so happy that we had done. I think we got good good reviews because Jim certainly put it all together beautifully. And every one of us had been handpicked by Patrick and by Jim. And so, um, yeah. You're married to Robin again in Carefully Might Hear You. In Carefully Might Hear You, married to Robin again. And just really great working with her in that, you know. That's, I have, I have never liked my own work. I, I, no, never. Can you watch yourself on screen? No, yeah. no. I remember <clears throat> 1993 very much. Uh, I was touring with a show, we, a comedy. We went right up the east coast of Queensland and I played this sort of West End comedy, you know, called A Bed Full of Foreigners and everything. And in the meantime, having finished filming uh, Strictly Ballroom, uh, when, you know, and, and they began to have previews around Sydney and uh, Philomena Moore, who was the lady who took over, really one of the leaders who took over ICS, phoned me and said, oh, winners, winners, ah, oh, it's a great, and uh, she's raving on, that was what they call me in the agency, winners, winners, you know, so when I sort of, when I get back to Sydney, there'll be another preview somewhere, so you you better go and see it because and everyone's raving about this bloody movie I could talk reams about Baz Luhrmann and about putting that show together and you know it's it's the thing I'm most famous for now mm. you know like <laughs> was that your hair yes yeah. uh, this is another you are dead right when it recently went to wear again in here in Sydney I think around Australia you know, someone said, love the wig. No, it was not a wig. That white hair piled high was brilliantly made that way by Paul Williams, same name as the American composer and singer. Paul Williams, a brilliant hair technician, and also, without telling me what he was going to do, and his wife, Baz Luhrmann, and, um, y you know, they... We just want to send your hair a couple of shades lighter. And I sat there innocently in an Oxford Street hairdresser while they ladled this gunk under my hair and I thought, isn't this guy clever? He knows exactly how much to put on to... S and it dawned on me, I was being bleached senseless. It, you know, it's, and it's correct for the character. Oh, the whole aesthetic that's, of the film, also. That's, I mean, it's yeah, just, yeah. But, you know, but Liz Kendall would would proxy his hair. He would at home, and he would think no one knew he did it. Yes. He, Liz Kendall would think that everyone thought he was a natural blonde, yeah. and you know, and the second time they had to redo it during the shoot. It was, you know, second time they used too much, and there's a yellow haze. You know, when you use too much peroxide, apparently, you get a yellow something look. Quite apart from the blonde. And so that actually became part of it. Anyway, I came back to Sydney and I hadn't seen the film. And there was one last preview at the old Valhalla Cinema here in Lee Point Road. And so I went along, I snuck in the back. There were 14 of us present and, you know, and a bit of a battered projector. And I, I watched. Well, I loathed me. I loathed me as Les Kendall. And I thought the whole film was a bit... What the hell do we bother to make that for? And all that sort of thing. And I thought, 
you know, no, I didn't want to have to face anybody. So the moment the credits happened at the end, bang, I was like a rocket out, out the back stalls of the Valhalla, and I was getting across the foyer very successfully, and a voice behind me said, Peter, Peter. And I thought, oh my God, I turned around and, you know, phony smile or whatever. And it was David Stratton. And David said, Peter, that was just, and suddenly got to stand there. Well, David Stratton's telling me what a wonderful movie it was and how lovely I was. And I thought, what, what, what's David been smoking? You know, and, and, and anyway, I, I then, yeah, thanks David, I've got to go. So I then rushed out, you know, grabbed the car and drove home. And, but, you know, David was dead correct. There's something about that. And I've seen the film about three times now, maybe. And I've come to like Les Kendall. Mm. I've come to see what he's about and everything. And, you know, I still love Paul's dancing, most of all. Bill and Tara, the two leads, are just fabulous. Give me a weight in the chest, One, two, three, four. Partner up. Happy as Larry they were last night. They were on the phone for hours. I'm just asking you, what did you think of the steps? I don't think! I don't give a shit about them! We lost! Don't you worry about Barry. Spinning the girl off! Oh, Fran, are you out of that apricot scrub? Oh, me, Mrs. Hastings. I'll bring something tomorrow with the toner. It's a dollar dazzler special this week. Thanks, Mrs. Hastings. Rolling in! I don't want us to end up like that drunk Ken Railing. <gasps> Ken Railings is a ballroom king! Good, Clary! I've smoothed it over when Les Kendall talks. Barry Bible listens. <laughs> I've got my happy face on today, Les. Everything's gonna be all right! Oh, my God. I'm sorry, Mrs. Mason. But the performance as Les is a wonderful comic um, characteristic about it, but also great pathos, too. He's quite a sad character. That's what, yeah. you know, and this is... We did a hell of a lot of rehearsal. Uh, Baz understood it, you know, like, normally if you make a movie, you sort of turn up on the day and say the lines and go home. But Baz made sure every one of us knew who we were. And, you know, like, at one particular time, I had to say, you know, everyone was there, and Baz is sort of saying, I, I, I had a talk about Les Candle. Who was Les Candle? And, I based him on a number of people that I knew, and I was able to tell him. And, you know, including, I had a dog named Ben, because one of the guys that I had taken in front of the camera as Les, he lived just over here, quite close actually, um, and um, he had a dog called Ben, and I met him and I met, uh, I met Ben. So I was fully aware, because this guy was uh, one of those um, elderly gay guys who's lived alone all of his life, and he sort of lives at home with all these black and white old movies. Every film that Betty Davis ever made, he had, and he'd sit there with a bottle of claret and watch it at night time, one of those. Wonderful. And this lovely dog called Ben was right there. And I was fully aware of, you know, so... I owe a lot to him because uh, Les and it was sort of him to a great extent plus other people Pat Thompson Pat Thompson mm. oh golly you know she 
she died of a terrible heart attack you know like we'd finished filming and everything and I don't think even the previous screenings had begun she lived at a flat in King's Cross she was just I think sitting on doorstep or something or other outside her flat and a huge heart attack and she herself was a heavy smoker and you know she was a terrific actress her performance is still the best characterization of all of us in that film mm -hmm. beautiful stuff yeah. and but she sort of died because she worked hard and you could see it she was as tough a lady as the character was and but she was really great and it was quite a shock and such a pity that she never saw her excellent work yeah, yeah. That, that you know this did happen to her luckily um, Bill Hunter not unknown for his love of a drink but he knocked himself around again when before we began filming and his doctor once again had said 12 months off the booze so your liver can rebuild and so Bill Hunter was totally clean and sober for the whole shoot he was a joy to work with really great I worked with me another project where he was back on the drink no, having a few drinks during the day. By the time you finish filming, at the end of the day, rather not be with Bill. <laughs> rather, I mean, I, I got on well with him, and he's a terrific actor, terrific guy. Great um, anecdotes because of the people he worked with, and uh, you know, great. And everybody in that movie was just, you know, you just got on. It's great, you know. It was a beautiful crew to get on with um, and even a shade better crew was the crew we had on careful he might hear you I remember once on location in um, um, oh, that big house down there in Darling Point that was owned by the Roman Catholic Church it was the hospice when the AIDS epidemic was on um, and, oh, never mind I'll, I'll phone you at midnight tonight to let you know but um, it like we were there and that as you know carefully might hear you was set in the 1930s during lunch break we're at trestle tables and all of us are eating and all the actors mixed up with the crew and you could only tell actors from crew because we were in 1930s clobber and the crew we just got on terrifically with those people and that was really how I know there have been other movies that have been you know when you get on with a whole team it's great fun to make a movie it's good it's hard work but it's it, but everyone's it's, pulling together everyone's pulling together I, I've been on a movie where uh, you know there's a famous I think a first assistant director said in one movie I wasn't in the movie but it was you know they lined everything up and it was time to get the actors on the set to you know run it through and then start to film it and his great line was bring on the warm props and bring on the warm props and you think it is amusing except the attitude deep inside of the in my experience of a camera crew that's the immediate mob of people around the camera can be pretty arrogant and you know you're there to fit in and make a lovely picture 
and quite vulnerable also. What scared out yeah, of our wits? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but uh, you know, and, and them, but the whole world's about them. I mean, I, you know, I once saw a woman director deal with a crew, and it was bliss because she just firmly. They were telling her where they were going to put the camera for the next shot. She simply said, no, I want it over there. And oh, and they were, oh, surely, girly, you don't want it there, attitude. And she just kept it and she got the shot where she wanted it. And this was the beginning of my career when I was quite young. And I thought, that's right. Doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, they're the boss. We do what they say. And you know, there's never been that kind of you know worry that, I know women still have today that there is that glass ceiling in so many areas, but the women directors can be terrific. Yeah. They want that, and that's what they're going to get. Carefully Might Hear You is, yeah. of course, based on a novel by Sumner Locke Elliott. That's right. And as was Water Under the Bridge. That's right. Like miniseries. That's right. I was in that. Yeah, of course. Um, did, was he ever present or...? No, no. Because he was alive at the time. when Brown He was, was alive there. at the time. But he and his partner uh, live in America, lived in America. And they used to, they had an apartment in New York and they had, um, but they used to go north in the summer to get away from the New York heat. And anyway, something or other happened. Um, I, I got his address. Uh, I wanted to tell him something. He wrote back. You know, he wrote back on a battered typewriter and he said how much he liked the film, a couple of things he didn't care for and I just wanted to tell him that's editing done by the people who own the cinema to cut it back so they can have an extra screening. That's what that was about. Yeah, there's about six minutes cut out of Careful He Might Hear You. And anyway, but he then complimented me on playing George and said that there's a line I have at the end of the movie that he said was the consummate timing. Thank you, Sumner. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, um, he was, you know, like, he saw the film and... um, because it was a miracle it was made, you know. I mean, it was bought many years ago when it was first published and they were lining up Elizabeth Taylor and somebody else to play the two female leads and then everyone didn't get the money or they didn't want to do it and it was just sort of picked up as an afterthought sometime. Can we please try to do it in Australia? Like the same attitude as Farlap. Um, getting the money to make Farlap was... Uh, the guy, uh, whoever the producer was, forgotten his name again. Great guy, really beautiful guy. His whole passion had been to make Farlap, and he ended up talking to a Hollywood producer, who said, "I'll do it. I'll give you ten million dollars, and you can make Farlap. It'd be great." Only thing was, Tommy Woodcock, Farlap's great friend and you know, human, had to be an American, right? Secondly. Farlap wasn't allowed to be a gelding because had a standby for son of Farlap. <laughs> and literally, and he had the guts to say to this guy, no, if I did that in Australia, I would be laughed out of the country. You know, because we all know the story roughly of Farlap and what a horse it was and 
really great and you know the amount of research that was done by everybody to get the film right even so it's a real reader's digest cut down of the true story of Farlap but it's 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 you know fair enough but no they could have made Farlap they could have taken the 10 million dollars and done all this as required by the bloody Americans. Another Summer of the Seventeenth Doll. I love that oh, story. Oh yeah, er- right. Ernest Borgnine and Angela Yeah, Lansbury. all of that. All of that. <laughs> well, Pete, as, as we've heard, there's quite, a, I'd say, a nice balance of of stage and screen work in your in your career. Yes. Did you have a preference for one or the other? Stage. Stage, yeah. Because about immediacy, or yes, because that? also, yes, you're working with the people out front. And you don't change anything from night to night, but there are variations on, you know, basic things like if the audience isn't with you, you don't pause for laughs. You're not going to get them. So what you do is you go through, don't leave any pauses, and see if they come back in a better mood after interval. But it, it's that, and you are working, you are telling the story to um, the people who were right there. Um, I like in moments in cinema also there have been moments that working with an actor right there you know what you're doing and you do create it but you know it's it's for the two people performing and um, much as I love movies I love watching movies still till the early hours of the morning and I you know still my best memories, my best times, would be with a cast on a stage. Um, that's all. And it's all very well for Mary Renault, the great author who wrote those books about ancient Rome, who have written in her book The Mask of Apollo about a Greek actor back in those days called uh, Nick, Nicky, Nick, Nick something or other. Mary Renault has someone make the observation that your performance as an actor in ancient Greece lives until the last member of your audience dies. And I think, no, I'd rather have it on film. (laughs) (laughs) I know, because the last member of my audience dying, they're going to be, oh, poor buggers, they're going to be pretty close to my age. You know? Do you miss it, performing? No. 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 I don't know. I've been asked that before. Oh, do you miss it? No, I don't. No. At the time, you rehearse a play, you work on a, on a television production, a cinema production, and you do the job. But that's then. This is, you know, the past is another country. They do things differently there. Unquote. And no, I, no, I don't, because there's a lot of energy, and as you know, I'm kind of a professional cripple these days with a walking machine with four wheels to get me around even this small house um, but it takes a lot of you know and there's a lot of fear I never went on stage without I was nervous never it's eight shows a week and you've got to burn yourself out and become a bigger neurotic when you go on stage and work for an audience um, no, people. A lot of audience don't understand that, do they? No, but they don't have to. They've paid their money. They bought their ticket. They've got every right to sit there 
and you know say I didn't like that or I didn't mind that but no and there's well, there's a priest from my own church who once said oh you actors always putting on an act and I just wanted to smack him in the face I thought what about you priest you get up there and you know when did you write that sermon you know nothing in that sermon for us is there only for your ego but I didn't I've never said that to a priest a couple more drinks one day and I will but it's yeah um, people you know like it's a tough profession you know I mean you know it's been around a while it's the second oldest profession in the world I understand the oldest one being a prostitute now this is something I have never gone into myself but I have heavily gone into acting as a second choice <laughs> I hope someone's listening to this clearly yeah um, prostitutes don't have agents oh, they have agents to it oh they do they, they have do. Pimps. pimps yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> never called Gloria Payton a pimp I would have been hit very hard <laughs> Peter Whitford thank you so much for your story young Peter thank you very much for letting me talk to your microphone We've used up a lot of electricity, haven't we? Oh, no, it's a battery. It's fine. Oh, it's a battery. Yeah. All right, OK. All right. Thanks, Pete. That's all right. <laughs> Safe trip home. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Peter as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Our elders possess such a wealth of knowledge and experience, it's so vital that we hear these stories. Another elder I had the privilege of talking to recently was Maestro Richard Bonning. I spoke to him via Zoom in Switzerland, where he resides in Chalet Monet, the home he shared with his wife, Dame Joan Sutherland. At age 92, he has lost none of his passion for making music and shares with us a vast knowledge of operatic and ballet repertoire. It's an inspiring conversation and it was a privilege to chat with the great man. Thanks for joining me and Peter Whitford in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.